I haven't met you before, I'm so glad you're here. I'm, I'm Tom. I work uh, with uh, Vic here along uh, as pastors of this church. And uh, oh yeah, the guys are going to come along for offering. If you have anything to give, those guys can take it up. <clears throat> but we have been working uh, through the, the book of 1 Corinthians and we've taken a, a couple of nights so far to sort of get, get into uh, waist deep into the book and, and we've tested the waters and we've seen that uh, if we can say anything about the Corinthian church, we can say it's a true church in Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit, by the appointment of the Father. That's true of every gospel church, but it's a messed up church. It's not just messy. It is entirely messed up. It has sin throughout. It's got uh, theological issues. It's got uh, relational issues. It's got practice issues. Uh, it's got communion issues. People are literally dying in this church because God is judging them for how they're mis, uh, uh, mis, uh, uh, disobeying rather the, the commands around the Lord's table and all sorts of other things. So this is quite a church to study, and it's been our joy to sort of get to know it a little bit. Uh, one of the, the first problems that Paul jumps right into and just starts, uh, starts arguing against to get right first up was not, as we said last week, it wasn't initially and immediately the sexual problems or the relational problems or the theological problems so much. His, his initial problem had to do with how they were thinking of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the cross is our life. It's the center of all of our theology. It's the source of all of our relationships. It's everything to a Christian. And especially to a Christian missionary, apostle, and pastor like Paul. And so the, the symptom that he was addressing that was reported to him was there's a whole bunch of factions and there's ch the church is in its little, it's in its little sex and, and separations and these guys like this preacher and these guys like that preacher and they don't mingle and they're separated and probably they were also having meetings in local uh, homes and it's probably the, uh, those people's homes who was really controlling the little mini schools within the church. It's just an ugly place to walk into. You don't get a warm welcome. How are you doing? Glad you're here. Uh, happy to have you come take a seat. When you walk into that church, you're getting a, a name tag and you're getting people trying to pull you to their team and people are slandering the other dude. Like, you don't want to go join their team. They, they suck. They've got these problems with them. And, and you don't, you, you know, that's not a welcoming, nice place to be. But Paul has addressed the symptom uh, and uh, assessed the symptom and realize that this is coming from the fact that they have insufficiently considered the cross of Jesus Christ as the source of all glory of God. And he last week compared it uh, at the end of chapter 1, verse 18 to 32, uh, 31, coming up to chapter 2, he, he compared God's wisdom in the cross to what the world of the wise and the wisdom of the world have to say. And he really was saying that if we, have a, if we preach properly the cross of Jesus, it offends the Jews because they want a powerful Messiah. They want a Messiah who triumphs through miracles like, like Moses did. They want Jesus, uh, the, the Messiah to come through and, and split Rome in two like Moses did to the Red Sea and just leave all the Romans dead in an ocean like Moses did to the Egyptians. That's what we want. And instead, you're going to tell me that this Messiah, which literally means anointed one, this Christ, which is just the Greek word of anointed one, was accursed. He was destroyed on a cross. That's, the, that, that's, a, that's a sign of a curse to a Jew. They could not palate that. Jew, Jews kept on hearing the same gospel from Paul. He didn't change. 
And then the Greeks didn't like it because they, they were sophists, remember? Sophia being that Greek word for wisdom. If you've got a word, name like Sophie in your family, that's coming from that word. Uh, and, and so you've got uh, the Greeks who love the sophistry, the philosophy. The, they, they would preach in this eloquent, smooth, uh, lofty, uh, uh, really engaging wisdom that was very smooth like butter but really had no meaningful meat to it. But they didn't care. They would just, they would just follow these guys who could preach amazingly, and they love this, this high and lofty, thoughtful wisdom. And Paul comes along and says, I've just got basic, run-of-the-mill truths for you. There was a dude, he was God, he died, now you can live, repent of your sins, stop sleeping with everybody, and come and worship Jesus. And the sophists, who, who elevated themselves in this, in this uh, uh, mental, intellectual, and always sexual lifestyle, didn't like that either. And here's Paul. The Jews don't like it, it's weak. The sophists don't like it, it's foolish. But here, the foolishness and weakness of God is stronger and more wise than anything the world has comprehended. This is the cross, because among both, those who hate it for different reasons, are the called of God, the elect of God. And I don't care what they say they don't like, I preach the gospel, and God awakens sinners out of both parties to come and believe. And so was the Corinthian church born. And so here they are, and Paul keeps on going. It's the, the, the themes of tonight, and we are, you're going to be very uh, impressed by this, going to do an entire chapter tonight. Wow, thank you, Emma. Uh, wow, yeah, an entire chapter. But the themes are very similar from last week. We're going to do chapter 2, and I'm just going to read straight through it, and then we're going to come to the exposition. Hear now the word of our almighty triune, only living God. Paul says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a, a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? And so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. 
For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? He quotes from Isaiah. But we have the mind of Christ. May God bless the reading of his inerrant, beautiful, glorious word to us this evening. <clears throat> I want to start breaking down what the, what the meanings, uh, what Paul's getting at here when he's talking about wisdom in himself as he was coming to preach, verses 1 to 5, in the, in the wisdom of the world compared with the wisdom of God in verses 6 through 9, <clears throat> and then the wisdom that comes from the Spirit in verses 10 through to 16. So first of all, let's look at the wisdom of the preacher. Let's look at Paul's own sort of autobiographical uh, comment about himself. When he came to Corinth, he says up in verse 1 and 2, when I, right, let's do a case study. I've just said all this about the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man and how it's folly and weakness. Well, I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Also look at verse 4, which says, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. So same words going on here. He was not coming in order to, to impress the social elite and try and play the game of the intellectual elite and try and get their, 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 their agreement and try and get their, uh, trying to impress them and get their approval. That was not the game of Paul. That was not the calling of the apostles. They were told the truth you carry and the gospel you preach will be hated. It's not known by the world, so don't ever expect to take it to the world and have them say, yeah, we've, we've always agreed with this. We, that's nice. We've always thought we're dead and terribly in our sins and only God can sovereignly save us and it happened through the death of his son incarnate in Jerusalem. That's great. If you, if you ever get to a faraway land, you preach the gospel and they say, we've already believed that. You're doing it wrong. You, you didn't preach the gospel. Step back, retrace your steps, and then try again. But here's Paul. He's not at all uh, discouraged by the fact that they didn't already believe it, that they weren't going to give him their approval. He knows this. So many men, so many pastors, so many uh, churches today try to have so many ideas and tactics and methods and what have you in order to try and be relevant to the world. Or, or try and prove that their, their message is timely and have a, have, a, have a message that is timely and they try and have something that gets the approval or, 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 or they want to have a ministry that lasts. But trying to be relevant to the world is the first step to being irrelevant to the world. If Paul had come to the Greeks and preached something they already agreed with, then he's adding nothing to them and may as well not have gone. If he goes to the Jews and just tells them what they already know, then he may as well have not gone. But we go with a countercultural, serrated edge of the gospel with, with words of gentleness and love, but still a serrated edge that they don't know, they don't like, and they despise. He says, I didn't come with the impressive words that would sway people. I didn't come with lofty speech. I came preaching the crucified Jesus. He even says in this, this, this real act of hyperbole, he says, I knew nothing among you except Jesus and him crucified. This doesn't mean that 
that Paul preached on no other topic other than the crucifixion. What, what he means is that, that he did not preach on anything if it did not connect to or come out of the cross of Jesus, which of course is the same as what he says in Acts 20 when he says, I did not withhold from you the, the preaching of the whole counsel of God. He preaches on everything the Bible has to say. And yet he sees that everything the Bible has to say either points to or comes out of the crucified Jesus. He is the apex of all of God's revelation. So if you, if you read that and you can think of a few chapters of theology that, that don't fit in the crucifixion of Jesus, it's actually misunderstanding on you. You need to see that every element of the Bible, every element of theology of, in our evangelism, in our apologetics, in our, in our social interaction, it all comes back to the cross somehow. Paul also, when he says, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech, he doesn't mean that he's against things like poetic devices, uh, uh, using a, a loud voice, tools of communication, devices of speech to assist in understanding. He used all of those. He used analogies, he used pictures, he used stories, he lifted up his voice, he stood on high platforms, he utilized stages and amphitheaters, used poetic devices, quoted scripture, even quoted cultural prophets of the Greeks. He did all of this, but why? The question is, why did he do everything he did? The answer is to greater and more clearly communicate the cross of Jesus never to impress them and sort of distract them from this sort of this backhand that's coming of the cross. Let's, let's try and, you know, do a sleight of hand here. No, he, he did all of it to communicate more clearly the gospel of the crucified Jesus. So that's, that's what, what Paul's meaning here in verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> but we can see also in verse 3, something that maybe, you, maybe if you knew that this was written in Scripture, you would guess that it was the apostle Peter who wrote it the guy who ran away from a servant girl, <clears throat> the, the guy who got afraid of a few winds and waves and fell into the ocean while Jesus was walking on water beside him. But this is actually the Apostle Paul. And he says in verse 3, And I, right, confession time, I was with you in weakness and in fear and with much Trembling. Now, that's a really holy way to try and interpret that and say, oh, he's, he's so shaken by the holiness of God. All that means is he's, he's there in fear and trembling at, at God. But, but really, what, what he's saying is that, and this is in the context of his own weakness, he's saying, I was scared. And we don't need to think, well, that's unspiritual to be scared. No, he was scared but still preaching. It's okay if we feel fear. We feel like our, our knees are shaking, we're sweating because somebody just mentioned the topic of religion and it might come to you at the lunch break and you don't know what to say. It's okay. Just be sure to speak. Don't, 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 don't be worried if the open door brings fear to you. Just make sure you walk through it and God, like he did with Paul, will carry your words Foolish though they are, and though they will be rejected, he will take them through to the hearts that he has called to himself. 
But here he is saying that he's shaking, he's fearful, uh, and, and you can sort of see this coming off the back of him going to uh, Athens where he preached this whopper of an apologetic sermon in, in the Areopagus and he really didn't receive that much of a, of a uh, great uh, accolades. They didn't like it all. They called him a babbler, an idiot. They kicked him out. Others sort of, were, they believed, they were saved, but it wasn't, it wasn't encouraging by any means. Uh, on the whole, uh, he had just come from... Philippi uh, and Thessalonica and Berea where he had been beaten or chased out of town in every town. He's still got raw scars on his back while he's traveling here. He's coming into this town that, like we said, is a uh, first century Las Vegas. It is... Uh, uh, just been started by all this money by the Romans. It's quite a young town with, uh, with all of this money and, uh, uh, and fleshly passions poured into it. And here he is with all of, these, all of this idolatry, all of these sexualized religions, and he's going to have to go in and preach. He's human. He's feeling quite fearful. And if that doesn't sort of shake your image of Paul, this burly guy, this Tarzan of a missionary enough. I want to read to you something that comes out of the, the Acts of Paul and Thecla, which was a, it was a second century document, so after the time of the Bible, um, and it's actually got some weird stuff in there that we don't trust, but there's a, dis- there's a description of Paul in this very early document that while everybody who reads the document says, Paul never said that about marriage, and that's a heresy, stop teaching that, let's put this book away because it's not very trustworthy, they never say anything about the description of Paul given. And so there's at least some historical reason to believe what is said of Paul. The story is that Titus is telling Onesimus to wait for Paul at the city gate. He's going to come to us, wait for Paul, and here's what he looks like. This is is what you're going to be looking for. He says, look for a man of middling size. This is translation, so short. A man of middling size, and his hair is scanty, so almost bald. And his legs are a little crooked. His knees were far apart, meaning he's got bow legs out and in. His knees are far apart. He has large eyes, and his eyebrows meet got a monobrow. And his nose was somewhat long. All right, that's Paul. Some of you guys are thinking, I know that guy. That's Gimli. (laughs) And he carries an axe and he's escorting a a few short people to Middle Earth and is, I know that guy. Monobrow, short, round legs, dangerous over short distances. That's that's Paul. He, He did not look like a missionary taking the light of the gospel to the nations kind of apostle. I want you to wonder if, you know, we're all spiritual. We don't care what people look like. All right. But, but, but imagine yourself sitting down in public or in church and that guy gets up. As if you wouldn't have to hold back a chuckle. As if you wouldn't think, here we go. What's, what's the dwarf got for us today? Like, like there is just a, a physical element to which, we, though we try and be spiritual, the, the, what we look at often affects whether we listen or not. And I'm saying Paul was God's instrument to blast open the demonic, satanic kingdom walls that kept the gospel back from the nations. 
and he looked like this on purpose, right? He was told as a baby, as in as a little child, God made you this way. He loves your googly eyes and your massive nose, little Saul. God made you this way. And, and, and so here's Paul, not a good looker, not an impressive dude to, to behold, and he's walking into this town that is hip and stylish and sexualized and, and, and expensive, and here he is. Would you listen to him? It adds an element to the fact that if anyone gets saved under this guy, it's because the Holy Spirit made them listen. <clears throat> and so here he says, I'm in fear and trembling, probably embarrassed by what it looked like, weak and in trembling. That's Paul coming in. But it doesn't stop him because he knows that the power of what he has to say is not in his wisdom, his loftiness, his impressiveness. It's in what he says in verse 4 and 5. He says, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He knew nothing but Christ and him crucified. He preached the wisdom of God and he spoke of the, the, and he displayed the spirit and power. Now, all these phrases are speaking of the same thing. It's the crucified Jesus. There's a, there's a, an, a, a very common tendency to take this phrase that he says, I didn't speak in plausible words of wisdom. I came with the demonstration of wisdom, uh, sorry, of spirit and of power. And it's so easy to, to, in our modern context, translate that to be that I didn't come just with words. I came with a miraculous healing ministry. And while that is true, that in Paul's ministry to Corinth, he did engage in wondrous works of miracles, which he speaks of later on, this is not the wordage that Paul uses to speak of that. So on a very word level, he's not talking here about miracles, because that's not the words, he doesn't use the words of spirit and of power when he's talking about miracles. But also, what, what we are getting at in this whole chapter is that the power of God's Spirit is the regenerating, converting power that when a fool preaches a foolish and weak message, eternal souls, dead in sin, turn around, resurrect spiritually, and start believing this foolish, weak gospel and living like Jesus. That's the power. And, and the way we can just know for certain, I see some of you need convincing, we, we can know for certain that he wasn't talking about miracle ministry here is because he says, I, I demonstrated the spirit and of power, or in the literal translation, it could just be spiritual power or powerful spiritual acts. <clears throat> it says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We're told in the Gospels, we're told in the epistles, that those who look at miracles and trust those are fools, or at least they're idolatrous, meaning they're worshipping an idol. Or adulterous, meaning they're, they're cheating on God. They want something impressive, miracles, something that's physically pleasing instead of God himself and in his truth. So if Paul is saying spiritual power means miracles, then he's telling us, place your faith in miracles. You see a guy performing miracles, chase him. You see somebody in a ministry of healing and resurrecting people and, and all sorts of other fanciful things, go and follow him. Your faith should rest in that. But he's going to say later on, 
about the, the super fake apostles that are plaguing the Corinthian church. Their miracles are real, and it means nothing if their truth is false, if their doctrine is wrong. So, let's get some clarity there. Paul came not in impressive words, not looking impressive, himself quite scared, and yet he preached the gospel, and the Spirit took that gospel and converted people. That is biblical ministry. So the wisdom of preachers is to simply preach Jesus crucified. If you ever leave here, go to another church, if you move to another city, if whatever happens, you need to be desperate and demand that what you hear constantly is the truth about Jesus crucified. The gospel is central. No matter what other things they have to distract, is Jesus being preached. Let nothing get in between you and the crucifixion, you and the, and the Jesus who hung there for you when it comes to sermons preached on Sundays. But let's keep on going. Uh, look at verse 6. Now we're going to see the wisdom of man as Paul compares it to the wisdom of God. Verse 6 is a bit funny. He says, look, among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Here's all this talk of him saying, I don't preach wisdom. I don't preach wisdom. I don't pre preach wisdom. But in a sense, I do preach wisdom to the mature. But he's clarifying and qualifying himself here saying, but it's the sort of wisdom of God that's secret and hidden. It's almost not even worth calling it wisdom in a culture that thinks of wisdom as this lofty speech. But, of course, there's true biblical godly wisdom. And the mature, or the Christians, the spiritual, hear it. But let's keep going. He says, Among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the... Actually, we'll stop there. We'll just stop there for a second. Do you see the two comparisons here between, between the results of man's wisdom and the results of God's wisdom? The end stage of man's wisdom compared to the end stage of God's wisdom. The end of verse 6 says, the wisdom of this age and of the rulers of this age, so there's already a comparison. This world's wisdom is, is out in the open. It, everybody knows it. It's common. It's everywhere. And it's among the elite. It's among the impressive. That's the sort of wisdom of this age. But what does Paul say? It's doomed to perish. It's going down. It has a, a, a huge hole in the hull of this ship, and it is sinking more and more day by day. Do not trust in it. Do not see this glorious, worldly, cultural, impressive ship of wisdom and think that you really want to jump on. It seems to have all the bells and whistles and comfortabilities and, and approvals of man. Friends, it is sinking. It is going down to the bellies of God's condemnation. However, we have, he then, then compares it, we have a secret and hidden wisdom. It's not open. Not everybody knows it. The rulers of this age don't have it. It's secret. It's hidden. It's quiet. It's, of course, we're preaching it, but as far as it is known and understood, very few receive it. And the end of it is very different. Look at the end of verse 7. Speaking of God's wisdom in the gospel says, which God decreed before the ages, that's eternity past, God has predestined this glory intentionally, this is by his sovereign will that he 
foreordained this wisdom of God and Jesus on the cross for our glory. The end of our wisdom that is from God is glory for us, not to be doomed, but to be elevated and promoted up into an eternal, infinite state of glory with God, evermore to be conforming to the image of his Son from perfection to greater perfection forever. That's the wisdom that is so despised by this world. But also, look at verse 8 through 9. We're going to see that the works of man's wisdom and the works of God's wisdom are very, very different. The works of man's wisdom are shown to us in verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, that is the wisdom of God, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Do you see the the differences in what man's wisdom does and what God's wisdom does? Man's wisdom, trying to reach up to God and understand God and relate to God, he comes down to them and they murder him. It's a pretty good sign they haven't understood and comprehended God. They crucified the Lord of glory when he was right in front of them. There's never been a more glorious religion on earth at that time than Judaism. They had truth. They had real eternal truth, true miracles that that overpowered every other nation. And there's never been a more powerful human nation than Rome. So you've got the, the highest religion of all time at that point, And the highest nation of all time at that point, both climaxing in what? The crucifixion of Jesus. That's what the greatest, the brightest, and the best of this world can do. They kill Jesus. So so the wisdom of this world is still doing that. They're still seeking the destruction of Jesus and his gospel and his saints. But do you see the comparison? What God's wisdom does. God's wisdom does something that no one could have comprehended or understood. What what no eye has seen or ear heard, it's never entered into the heart of man. God used that act of murder to be the landmine that blew open his plan for redemption. God entirely outsmarted man's wisdom. He thwarted them. It was glorious. It was amazing. That's what God does. He uses sin for salvation's purpose. Whereas man's wisdom received salvation in a person and sinned against him to death. God's wisdom and man's wisdom manifest entirely differently in their works. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. There's many overlap and themes between the two epistles. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is speaking very similarly to how he writes in verse 8 here, saying, none of the rulers of this age understood it. They were blind to the glory. Over in chapter 4 of the second epistle, he says much the same. He says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, so here now we have 
the, the, the theme of the gospel being hidden and misunderstood. Even if it is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The image of God came and shone right in front of them, but the ruler of this age had them blinded. They could not see it, and so they killed him. But now we can move on to verse 10. Because while this is all very gloomy, and of course, if you're not a Christian, you, you need to realize this is you. You are blinded by the ruler of this age, which is Satan. You're blinded by your own uh, internal sin and sinful nature. You're blinded by your own love to the world and, and your inability to understand the true things of God. And if Jesus came again today, we need to realize we, are, if we're unconverted, you would, we would kill Jesus all over again. But here we have the good news that, that God has done what man could not do in his own strength. That's a story of the Bible. What man cannot do, weakened by sin, God has done by his spirit in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 10. These things, that is, the, the things of God, the wisdom of God, of Jesus crucified, which was not understood by the religions or the powers or the wise people of this world, these things... God has revealed to us through the Spirit. The us here is the apostles. He's saying that there was not among us apostles, we didn't arrive at this truth by sitting in a room together and, 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 and running through philosophy together and, and arguing and figuring out and finally climbing the mountain of, of understanding and, and reaching an enlightenment and then coming back down the mountain and started preaching it. It's actually very interesting here. We have, in philosophy, there's sort of a, a history of two main schools. One is called empiricism. One is called uh, uh, rationalism. And I know I just lost most of you, but, but try, and, try, and, try and at least pretend this is interesting. Empiricism and rationalism. Empiricism says we can know nothing is true unless we empirically experience it. And so we have to, if we don't experience that truth, we cannot believe it to be true. So, so I do not actually know, as an empiricist philosopher, that you exist. What I know, though, is that I can feel certain parts of you, see certain parts of you, hear certain parts of you, but, but you, who you are, behind you, I can't figure out or know or truly believe. Obviously, that leads into so many different problems. It falls in on itself because empiricism cannot prove empiricism empirically. You don't experience that experience is the only... I'm going, it's not a philosophy class. Right, but then we go to rationalism. And rationalism says that you can know nothing is true unless you can purely intellectually and logically prove it. So, of course, I see you empirically, but that doesn't prove anything. I can touch things, that proves nothing. And so you have to break everything down to pure, rational thought. It's all done in the mind. And so they have to reason right back down to the building blocks of, how do I even know that I exist? You might have read or heard people say, I think, therefore I am. That's, that's the philosophy of rationalism, saying the only reason I can reason that I exist is because 
I'm thinking, I'm reasoning. I can't know I exist except for rationalistic, logical thoughts. And so then they try and prove all sorts of other things, but confess we can know nothing is certain unless we can prove it rationally. And so your God, if we can't prove it rationally, it's out, and all sorts of other things. Isn't it interesting that as Paul, 2,000 years ago, quoting Isaiah from 700 years before him, he outrules both of them. Empiricism is ruled out in verse 9 when he says, No eye has seen nor ear heard. The knowledge of God is not experienced or attained empirically. Also, he says, Nor has it entered the heart of man. Your version might say, Nor the heart of man imagined. It has not been rationalized by rationalistic philosophers. That's not what the apostles are. So how then, how in the world can these men achieve and attain such a high level of consistent and eternal and ultimate truth if they didn't figure it out and if they didn't experience it all as, as ultimate truth? Verse 10 tells us, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Our hope is not in a superior philosophy. Our hope as Christians in the Bible is not that smarter dudes wrote it. We don't care that, that this school and that school feels like they can outsmart the smartest Christians on the earth. We don't care. We're not resting on smart guys. We're resting on the fact that God unveiled himself to chosen people and confirmed that what they would write down would be the true revelation of God. Revelation outrules empiricism. Revelation of God, which is his act to us, not us figuring him out, but him revealing himself to us, that is what our hope is based on. The Christian Judaic religion is a religion of revelation. God comes to us. We don't reason or experience our way up. So this is how the apostles had this truth from the Spirit of God. And verse 11 and 12 uh, can be quite confusing. Really what it's saying is that just like, like I can look at you and I don't know what you're thinking. You think I do. I know we told that story a while ago of that pastor who had that ability in the deep uh, parts of Singapore and, and utilized it on his flock. I, I don't have that ability. You don't. We look at each other. I don't know what you're thinking. I don't even know if you're listening right now. It could be monkeys and symbols or last night's football game. I don't know. But what the only person that knows perfectly what you're thinking is your own immaterial self, your soul. You know perfectly. And so it is with God. He's using sort of a, a humanistic way of speaking of God. He's saying, uh, or a human way, not a humanistic way, and saying the only one who knows what God is thinking is the Spirit of God. And so the only hope that we would figure God out is if His Spirit comes to us and tells us. Man-made religion, empiricism, and rationalism is like me sitting across a table from you and writing down pages and pages and pages of what you're thinking. Hopeless. Destructive. Bad for people. Useless. But revelation is if the one across the table from you speaks that is trustworthy and that God has done in Scripture through the apostles. But look at verse 13. Because this is, <clears throat> this is how people receive the truth from the apostles. So how do the apostles receive the truth? From the Spirit of God. How do then people receive the truth from the apostles? And it's through spiritual preaching. 
He says, and we impart this, what we've received in the Spirit, we give to others, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, there's a way to read that, and in fact, I've heard it preached, that really just lifts that all up into this ethereal, spiritual, Gnostic, unbiblical view of Christianity. Like the real ones who get the teaching are those spiritual people, not the, not the normal carnal Christians, the spiritual ones who, who speak in tongues and, and fall on the ground and do whatever the leader of the movement tells you. And, and this is what people live under. It's, it's true. And, and they think that, 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 that the impartation comes through not words, it says they're not human words, but spiritual words. Maybe, maybe a spiritual chanting or tongues or just words that are too hard to understand. It is exactly the opposite of what Paul is saying. He is saying without, with plausible words that are easy to understand in the language of the day, when I explain them and I'm explaining Bible truths in common language in the power of the Spirit and you understand it, that's spiritual truth and spiritual wisdom. So, so Paul is saying, I, I spoke in language that you could understand. That's, that's part of what he was saying back in verse 1 and 2. It didn't come with impressive stuff. I just spoke the language of the day. The Bible is not written in the academic Greek. It's written in the street-level Greek of the day. Right? The slang language. That's what people were hearing. The apostles got common. They got vulgar in the sense that everyone could understand. And they spoke Biblical truth. So here's, here's what I'm, here's what I'm, I'm trying to show. That, that Bible spiritual preaching has three important necessary elements. It's somebody preaching about the Bible. Always preaching truth from the Bible. That's step number one. If, if that's not there, just leave already. It's not worth listening to if it's going to be called a sermon. But, but if there is somebody preaching about biblical truths and they're doing it in words you can understand. If they're just this theologian that loves all the big seven-syllable words, you know I struggle with four-syllable words. We're not even going to try that. But, but they're just trying to say things in ways that, that confuse you and impress you. That also is not spiritual preaching. Or if they're intermingling throughout their, their sermon things that feel really spiritual and look miraculous but aren't communicating clear truth, it's not spiritual preaching. This is just... A black and white, get it to the people, biblical truth in everyday language by the power of the Spirit. That's spiritual preaching. And that is what the Spirit uses to communicate truth. I want to end here in verse 14 to 16. The reality is, the reason this is such an urgent need is because there needs to be two levels of revelation. We, we spoke about this before. Revelation is God revealing himself to us. But that has to come in two parts. If you were imagining us, imagine the world was created. We were all on it, but there was no sun. Imagine that. Genesis got it all wrong, and the days were flipped back to front, where on the earth there's no sun. We realize all the plants, all the people, all the nations, we need light that is powerful enough to, to come down onto us. If we decided we needed something like a sun... There is not enough light or power on earth for us to produce a thing called a sun and shed enough light. What needed to happen was God put the sun in the sky in order for there to be light coming down. Right? This is We cannot reason up to God. He has to reveal himself. And so the sun shines. But there's a second level. That if the clouds are covering a certain planet or nation, then though the light is shining... 
you don't see it. You don't benefit from it. And so there is a second level of revelation, a personal, subjective sense of revelation, which the Spirit of God needs to personally come to you, break open the bars of your heart, and let the light of the gospel come in. So the preaching of the gospel can't happen unless God spoke to men about it, but also the understanding and reception of the gospel in human hearts cannot happen either. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll read this. Uh, if you're there, it'll help you, but it, you don't have to turn there. I'm not going to wait. Verse 5 says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, and then he, he quotes Genesis, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when you read scripture, when you hear preaching, and it's just some dude with a Bible, and, and he's, he's up there just saying everyday human words, how can that possibly, and you can see why this is so insulting to the, to the guru, and to the, the spiritualist, and to the, the Greek philosopher who, who strive all their days to reach the pinnacle of human achievement and wisdom. And we just say there's some uneducated guy with bendy knees and one eyebrow, and he's just speaking language in everyday words, and we are becoming spiritual people. That's how God works. When that happens to you, when your mono-browed, bow-legged pastor gets up and just starts explaining a book and you behold Jesus there, you have to understand. We do not think that, that we don't believe in miracles in the worship service. Friends, explaining Bible and it being understood to point to Jesus is a miracle. There's dozens of miracles every Sunday in this church when the word is explained and understood to point to Jesus. It's, mir it's miraculous. It's to the glory of God. And, and doesn't this just make you desperate? Doesn't this just make you want to run to your word and spend time there realizing every time you open the pages, dreary-eyed, sleep in your eyes, still head-ringing from a lack of sleep the night before, you're right then and there engaging in a miracle if you read and understand. And I hope this also leads you to patience with your unbelieving friends. They're just, they're dead. They're deaf. They're blind. We're not going to shove them in a corner and pound them with words until they believe. We're going to pray for them desperately because if the Spirit is not with our words, then our words will do no work. We want to, of course, ask, maybe it's possible, like the Jews to know all of this truth and have all of these spiritual religious experiences but still be unconverted. It's possible to be surrounded by light on every side and it not permeate. That could be you. You've been going to church since you were a kid or you've come in recently, whatever the fact, you are, if you are not converted, regenerated, eyes open, you're still outside of Jesus. And he died for sinners like you, like me, who have lived our whole lives in rebellion, seeking self-righteousness, judging other people, engaging in rebellion against his holy law. He died for you. And today, a miracle can happen if you simply believe in Jesus as your Savior, submit to him as your Lord, and become a spiritual, mature person who receives the wisdom of God and his power in Jesus Christ. Believe, come and talk to somebody afterwards, maybe somebody who brought you and invited you. We want to speak to you of Jesus if you want to put your faith in him. So let's pray.
And we pray, God, because you are the only one who can make truth effective in us. You have so graciously covenanted with us that as we, as we draw near, though we're f- fallen and flawed and weak and discouraged and distracted, you draw near to bring into our yet imperfect hearts glorious truths of Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that you would encourage everyone here that though we are normal and, and the offcuts of the world, we are to you precious and chosen and given of your spirit to understand spiritual truths. Pray, God, that we would be patient as we preach the gospel and as we evangelize. We would not be, be, be harsh with those who we really can expect nothing better and, of course, who we would just like. But I pray, God, that you would use the words of us. You would use them to permeate into the hearts of our unbelieving sisters and brothers and neighbors and friends that the gospel would go in, that the glory of Jesus Christ, who is himself the image of God, that he would shine into their hearts and bring them to life. We thank you for doing so among us, and we pray that we would live a life that is worthy of that calling we've received in Christ. Lord, it is for his glory and in his name that we pray all of these things. We thank you for your word. And everybody said, amen, amen.